0: Uh, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. The temptation is to title this sermon, Daniel in the lion's den. And I'm resisting that temptation and entitling and, and the sermon, How to Live in Babylon. Uh, and here's why. I don't think anybody this week is going to get thrown into a pit of lions. If you do, then, you know, I don't know what to say. Um, uh, however... What probably a lot of us will experience this week is living in a city like Babylon. So we're going to live in a city or a nation, you might say, like Babylon. And what I mean by that is Babylon was a city that wasn't really aligned with God's way, right? They were, had just actually conquered God's city of Jerusalem and taken his people to live in captivity in their land. So it was a land that was marked by antagonism to the way of God. It was marked by idolatry and sinfulness. And so how did Daniel live in Babylon and how should I live in Babylon? Now metaphorically, certainly some of us are going to get thrown to the lions this week. Some of us will. But metaphorically, each and every one of us is going to live in a metaphorical Babylon this week. And so let's think about how to live in Babylon. How did Daniel live in Babylon? So when we get to Daniel chapter 6, we think it's probably been about 70 years since Daniel was taken into captivity. We think Daniel's probably in his 80s at this point in Daniel chapter 6. So now we ask the question, how did Daniel live in Babylon for 70 years? How did Daniel do this? And I think if we look at Daniel chapter 6, which I've already read for us, Uh, we'll see four answers at least. And so those four answers that I'm going to walk you through this morning are we're going to, number one, if we're going to live in Babylon, we're going to pursue the best for the city, don't isolate. We're going to expect opposition, don't be shocked. We're going to remain faithful to our citizenship, don't assimilate. And then give God the glory regardless of the outcome, don't be the hero. So that's sort of the rhythm of each point, a positive, and then uh, what not to do. So let's start with pursue the best for the city. So, as we look at Daniel chapter 6 and those first few verses, I'm going to have us pause and just revisit where we've come from. So, in Daniel chapter 1, where we were a few weeks ago, Daniel, if you recall, was ripped from his homeland, from his family, and taken as a prisoner of war from Jerusalem to live in Babylon. They said, You're going to go to our schools, you're going to learn our language, you're going to study our literature, and you're going to just become a Babylonian. And what does Daniel do in chapter 1? He does that. He says, I'll learn your language. I'll study your literature. I'll master it. And by the gifts that God has given me, I will excel above all others in this University of Babylon. I just have one request. And this has to do with my diet. And that was Daniel chapter 1. And by the end of Daniel chapter 1, Daniel had risen the ranks and was head and shoulders above all else. Then you turn to Daniel chapter 2. God gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the province of Babylon. By the end of chapter 2, he's, he's over a whole province of Babylon. He's not in chapter 3, but in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel again serves King Nebuchadnezzar and is held in high regard. Daniel chapter 5, a new king is on the scene, King Belshazzar, but that chapter ends with David again having a promotion. Now he's third in charge of the whole kingdom of Babylon. So that by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6... It makes sense. It's like, of course, Daniel is the top guy for Darius. He was the top guy for Nebuchadnezzar. He ended up being the top guy for Belshazzar. And so, as you read Daniel chapter 1, verses, or Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, what Darius, this new king, has set up is he says, I got a lot of people to manage. I'm going to have 120 governors. I'll call them satraps. And they're going to just manage all the people. And then above those 120, I'm going to put three guys. And these three guys will make sure that none of these 120 are cheating me. But you know what? I'm watching this guy, Daniel. He has an excellent spirit. He's trustworthy. I'm going to make him over the three. I'm going to elevate him to be the number one. Now, that didn't uh, go over too well, and we'll get into that in a minute. But what I want to help us see is, so how did Daniel get to that position? How did he thrive in Babylon I think we can see two things. One, we can see from chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, that it was because he had things like this. Verse 3, an excellent spirit. Verse 4, he was faithful. He had no error or fault was found in him. Verse 5, there was no ground for complaint against him. We're describing someone who has impeccable, trustworthy character. He is trustworthy and faithful. You can't find him cheating. You can't find him skimming the top. He is 100%, no matter who's looking or who's watching, he is a man of character. But the other clue that we get into how did Daniel thrive in Babylon, we actually have to look to a different book of the Bible. So we're going to put it on the screen so you don't have to try to find it. But if you want to, it's Jeremiah chapter 29. And here's what's so interesting about Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah was uh, living at the same time as Daniel. And listen to the opening verses of Jan- Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests and the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So what's interesting about this is Jeremiah the prophet gets out pen and paper and he's inspired by God and he writes a letter to Daniel. And so Daniel has this letter from God through the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet and what does that letter say? Because that certainly must have helped Daniel thrive in Babylon. So what does the letter say? So I'm going to jump down to verse 4 because verses 2 and 3 are just full of words that are hard to say. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So how do we live in Babylon? How did Daniel live in Babylon? He pursued the best for his city. He said, you want me to go to your universities? I'll go to your universities. You want me to go on this career path? I'll go on this career path. And you know what I'm going to do for the next 70 years of my life? I'm going to make sure Babylon has the best roads they can have. I'm going to make sure Babylon has the best architecture it can have. I'm going to make sure it has the best water system that it can possibly have. I'm going to make sure its universities excel. I'm going to make sure its schools are excellent. I'm going to dedicate my life to making sure that the city of Babylon prospers because in its welfare, I will find my welfare. And I'm going to pray to my God that my God might bless this city in which I live as an exile. Now that is probably the exact opposite gut feeling that Daniel and the other exiles would have, right? Think how difficult this would have been. You ripped me from my homeland. I don't know where my parents are or my siblings, but now here I live in exile in this, and you want me to honor this city? Here's what I can do. I have the keys to the kingdom. I have the keys to the bank account. I have, I have access to all the emails. I have all the power. You know what I could do? I could make Babylon tank. I could work some conspiracies, I could spit out some some distruth, I could take some money and you know what, if Babylon's going to spend the money for this, you know what, it would honor God more than spending the money there is if I took some of the money that's being directed here and I would direct it over here because I know that God values this more than that and so I could just make some changes, make some adjustments and I could really do what God's will is, not what the city of Babylon says to do. That wasn't the mission that God gave them, was it? That wasn't what the letter from Jeremiah said. The letter from Jeremiah said, no, you seek the welfare of that city. You don't skim off the top. You don't cheat. You don't try to tank that city. You try to make that city the best city that it can be. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's the opposite of what we would think that one would do. And such is the kingdom of heaven. Pursue the best for the city. And that's what he did. And that's how he thrived for 70 years. That's how you and I are called to live in our Babylon. That's the calling that are on your life and on my life. We live in a Babylon. We live in a city that isn't pursuing God's way. And we are not supposed to withdraw. We are not supposed to check out. We are not supposed to isolate. If you think about your schools, if you think about your county courthouses, if you think about your financial institutions, social sector and the political sector around us today, and you think, man, they're corrupt. Man, they're just not getting better. They're getting worse. Well, Scripture says... That you are an exile. Scripture says that you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And now you live as a citizen, and now you live in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. So what would God have you to do? I think he would have you go out and seek the welfare of your city. I think he'd have you go out and say, like, you see a problem in the schools, then go and be a positive light in the schools. You see a problem in your universities, then go and be a positive light in your universities. You see a problem in the political scene, then go and be a solution to the problem that you see. Not to withdraw. We need teachers and professors and researchers that are Christians. We need bankers and entrepreneurs and financial advisors that are Christians. We need actors and artists and musicians that are Christians. We need builders and electricians and carpenters that are Christians. Why? Well, because it's clear from Daniel chapter 6, because it's clear from the letter from Jeremiah, because it's clear from the teachings of Scripture, and because Jesus said those words right out of his own mouth in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. You put your light under a bushel. How can it add light to anything? But if you're like me, you kind of prefer to be around people that think like you do and believe like you do and share the same values and the same culture that you want to create. And so if you're like me, then you think to yourself, yeah, but what if, you know, what if we just bought some land up like north like beyond zelianople where the city hasn't gotten to yet and we just buy a big piece of land we could put up some walls and we could build a city inside those walls and we could keep all the evil out we could keep all the evil out and we could create a safe space for our families we could do that and then we could create christian stores that sell christian products We could have Christian banks with Christian money and Christian schools that produce Christian people and Christian restaurants that sell Christian food and Christian music studios that make Christian music and Christian doctor's offices that make Christian health and Christian building companies that make Christian houses. And then you could have Christian city just outside of Babylon. If you go down that road, here's one problem you're going to run into. You're going to change and mess up a really important word, and that word is Christian, you're going to so muddle up the meaning of that word that you're not going to even know what it stands for anymore because you're going to start to say to yourself, hold on a second, how can you have a Christian house? How can you have Christian food? How can you have Christian buildings? I mean, I thought Christians were people. I thought a Christian was someone who had a relationship with Jesus. How can a nation be a Christian. How can a thing be a Christian? I thought a Christian was someone who had surrendered to Jesus as king. So you're going to mess up your definitions. And number 2, you just it's not the calling that God has given to us. And I'm not saying these things are bad. And I am intentionally trying to poke you. I am intentionally trying to make you uncomfortable. I'm trying to challenge myself to reconsider some of the strategies and some of the things and the way that I think and the way that I talk And highlight that we need to be careful with our language. We need to be careful with our strategies. And we have to keep Jesus' words at the forefront of our minds. If you keep all the salt in the salt shaker and you don't spread it out, then what good is it? If you keep all the light within the walls of your city, then what good is it doing to the people that are stumbling around in the darkness and don't know where to turn? I have no problem. I think Christian schools are wonderful. I graduated from them. I listen to K-Love and Air One every single day in my car, and I can't wait for the next season of The Chosen to drop. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating for anything extreme. But I do want to think deeply about the answer to this question. How am I pursuing the best for, my, for, for me and my family? Nope. that's not the question this morning. The question this morning is how do I pursue the best For my city, how do I pursue the best for this city to which God has sent me as an exile to live as a citizen of the kingdom of light amongst the the kingdom of darkness? How am I an element in this city that will help it prosper? Just a couple weeks ago, I was driving through Amish country, and I said to my friend in the car, "I said, you know, the older I get and the longer I'm around, I just think the Amish are onto something." I just think it's beautiful. I would just, maybe we should reconsider. You just, you get a farm, you isolate yourself, you have this wholesome place where you just work the ground and you keep the crazies away and you just have this space. And wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be great? Yes, it would. And you know why your heart longs for that? Because we're going to get there. But for now, you are called To live as an exile, as an ambassador for Christ in the midst of the kingdom of darkness to go out and be a light. That's what you've been called to. So we pursue the best for our city. We don't isolate. That's point number one. We're going to have to move quicker through the next coming points. So that's point number one. Point number two is expect opposition. Don't be shocked. So Daniel, uh, as we're going through the chapter, you heard it read. So Daniel's being a man of God. And the corrupt people around him, because if you're the only one with integrity and everyone else on your team is corrupt, then what do those corrupt people want to do? They want to get you out of there, right? And if you're the only one with integrity amongst a team of three and the other two guys are corrupt, you know what you probably are aware of? Well, they're probably conspiring against me. I mean, uh, darkness doesn't like light. Why? Because it exposes the, dark, the, the bad deeds. So Daniel's coworkers. Don't like that Daniel's shining light on the financial statements. I love how the story is written because when you get to verse 10 and you see that, so Daniel knew, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, I love that line because there's so much there. It's like, hold on a second. Daniel's the most important person in Babylon, second to the king. He's at the top of the chain. So I want to know not, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, I want to know when Daniel knew that they were meeting with the king. I'd like to know that. When Daniel knew that they were about to sign the document, but we're not told that. All that we're told is, when Daniel knew the document was signed, he continued on with his righteous living. So I want to know, like, well, what was Daniel's response when they when they had all those meetings? Why didn't he challenge it? Maybe he did. Why didn't he fight it? Maybe he did. Why didn't he petition the king? Maybe he did. We weren't told any of that because the person writing the story inspired by God wants us, the reader, to just see Daniel in this light. A guy who doesn't really seem to care, he just carries on doing what is faithful to God to do. You know, some people around you, and I love these people for the record, and I enjoy talking to them, but do you know some people love a conspiracy? Some people see a conspiracy around every corner. I know there are is this you in the room, I'll keep my eyes closed so I don't look you in the eyes. Um, there are some that love conspiracy theories, and that's we can go down that road together. My point is this though that Daniel doesn't seem to be one of those. Daniel seems fully aware, like once he knew the document had been signed, he carries on with his life. He's almost like the, the darkness is gonna be dark. Babylon's gonna be Babylon. They're gonna be wicked, and I'm gonna be righteous. I expect opposition. I expect it. I'm not shocked by it. I just carry on. I carry on praying. I carry on living according to my God. This can be difficult for us as Christians living in America today because we're a little bit um, messed up in our thinking because we had this period of time in our recent past where it seemed like Christianity was popular. Where it seemed like the Christian values that we espouse were sort of trending. In the court of popular opinion, they seemed to be sort of in. But now when we turn on the television, we're like, oh, shocked. My favorite TV show is not teaching me the Ten Commandments. I can't believe it. Or how about this one? Uh, I'm just shocked that when we pull all the people around here, they don't want to follow God's way. They want to go their own way. I can't believe they elected that official. I'm so shocked that that's who they elected. I'm so shocked to learn whatever that my Christian principles aren't embraced by the kingdom of darkness. The world is going to keep being the world. Babylon is going to keep being Babylon. According to the language of scripture, there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness, and there's the kingdom of light. And we are citizens of the kingdom of light, living in this kingdom of darkness. We should expect the kingdom around us to have it be dark. We should not be shocked. We should not be surprised. I'm currently listening to this amazing podcast called Maverick. I, if you're a podcaster, please listen to Maverick so we can talk about it. Season two of Maverick, they document the spread of Christianity in the Muslim world today. And so you can listen to it. They give all the metrics. How do they measure it? How do you figure that out? How are you able to make these claims? And so they explain all that, and you should listen to it. But they're making the claim that never before in the history of the world have this many Muslims ever before been coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's happening right now in countries around the world. The second claim they make is never before in the history of the whole world have this many people on the face of the earth been becoming Christians. They believe it's the greatest revival in the history of the world that is happening. And I didn't know about it, and you probably didn't know about it. And it's kind of shocking. But, you know, we should probably stop being shocked when we hear these things and realize that that's what the kingdom of heaven does, doesn't it? We get obsessed with, like, revival's going to come here where we can have Christian billboards and Christian concerts. That's where revival will come. And Jesus is like, while you're looking there, you know where I'm going to have revival? In hard-to-reach countries where it's illegal to be a Christian, I'm going to have just a wave of revival happen there while you're not even looking. Because that's what the kingdom of heaven does. I'm I'm listening to it yesterday, and uh, there's this episode, and here's what happens. In this Southeast Asian country... These two guys are on fire for Jesus. They were former Muslims. They go into this village and they start telling people on the streets about Jesus and saying, Muhammad is a bad dude. You need to follow Jesus. Next thing you know, a bit of a mob scene on the streets. And so the police come and save them. And so uh, maybe that's nice. Maybe it's not. Because the next thing you know, they're in jail and they're stuck in jail and they can't get out of jail. Missionary comes by and he's like, I'm going to get you guys out. I've got a lawyer lined up. I'm going to get you out of jail. These two new believers say like, hey, no rush, man. We got a discipleship going on in this jail, and people are coming to Jesus, so don't rush it. They finally get the lawyer. They're standing in this like British court set up, and so the two uh, disciples of Jesus are there, and the magistrate says to them and says, okay, what's going on? You can defend yourself, and they turn to the magistrate and to the courtroom, and they start preaching the gospel. Well, there's this man named Jesus. The courtroom starts to erupt, right? Like the courtroom gets out of hand because all the Muslims in the room are like, you can't do this. And so the magistrate has to shut it down, has to send everyone home for the day. We'll come back tomorrow. And you know what happens before the meeting the next day? Magistrate knocks on those two men's doors, sits down across them and says, "Um, tell me about this, Jesus. Like this is what's happening. Like that's what should shock us when we realize like, oh, my goodness, God is doing a work. God is doing a work. And do you know what the disciples uh, that have come to Christ out of these Muslim environments, do you know what they expect? They expect opposition. They expect significant opposition. And then they're pleasantly shocked when the magistrates turn to them and say they want to trust in Christ. And that's what happens in Daniel chapter 6 here, ladies and gentlemen. The king is the one who seems to turn to God by the end of the story, isn't it? The king, again, of Babylon is the one who turns. And so we ought not to be shocked by opposition. We should expect it, and we should uh, look forward to being shocked by how God works. I have to, uh, I don't even have Daniel in the lion's den, let alone get him out of the lion's den here, so i got to move quicker. Chapter 6, verse 10, uh, what we see in Daniel's prayer is that he is remaining faithful to his citizenship. Daniel's citizenship is in Jerusalem. He is a child of God, he is a Jew, and he worships the God of Israel. And that is widely known. That is his reputation. That's why they can set a trap and, and catch him in the trap, is because he has a reputation. He is a faithful follower of God. He is faithful to his citizenship. He does not assimilate. And when I say he doesn't assimilate, what I mean by that is he doesn't um, capitulate. He doesn't uh, give in to all the pressures of being a Babylonian. He goes to their universities. He follows his career path. He seeks the best for the city. But he does not say, oh, I'll just take a 30-day break on prayer. He understands through the wisdom of God where the lines are and where the lines aren't. Certainly in his 70 years, he's had to do some compromising. But by the wisdom of God, he's known where he can compromise and where he cannot compromise. And he said, you know what? I will uh, not assimilate to this extent. I will not yield to the pressure. I will not take a break from prayer. I will continue to follow because I am a citizen of Jerusalem. Now, you and I... Times have changed. We've already highlighted that in previous weeks. We're not citizens of Jerusalem, are we? The temple of God now abides within us, as the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The temptation that Daniel had is the same temptation you and I have: is the temptation to fit in, to assimilate, to say, like, "Okay, I'm going to have to deal with the fact that I am weird. I'm going to be weird. I'm going to live as a citizen of the kingdom of light in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, and I'm going to be weird." You're weird. Do you know what you just did you just gave up one of the most special and valuable moments in the week your sunday morning to sit with a group of people that "Mm, you kind of know kind of you don't know everybody who come strangers in the room and then you decided to like sing out of a red book songs that were written like hundreds of years ago like you're weird you're weird you gave up this time slot To come and sing old songs that you don't know with a bunch of people that you kind of know. So that why? Why? You're weird, man. The world thinks you're weird. And that's only the easy one for why you're weird. You know why else you're weird? Because you've decided you're going to love your enemies. And you're going to do good to those who hurt you. You're weird because you're going to honor and respect all men and all women. You're weird because you follow the teachings of Jesus. And you gather here with his followers. Why? Because you know it's really hard to follow Jesus out there in the midst of the kingdom of darkness whenever, oh, I just want to follow the values of Jesus. I need at least once a week to gather and be reminded of who Jesus is and who's with me along the way on the travels. So we should uh, remember our citizenship and not assimilate. And then finally, we live in Babylon by giving God all the glory regardless of the outcome don't be the hero so all right we know the story that's why i can just go fast here they catch him praying they throw him in the lion's den he emerges from the lion's den right and then it closes with that's where we want to close with is the words of king darius because the the hero of the story isn't actually daniel daniel didn't wrestle the lions and like pin him down all night did he The hero of the story is God. God's the hero of the story. God shut the lion's mouth through the angel that he sent. The story is fundamentally first and foremost about God, and it's certainly also about Daniel, but it is mostly that we would read it and give God the glory for the great things that God has done in this story. And if you start looking at this story and looking for God and looking for Jesus in the story, then it gets kind of interesting, and you start to say to yourself, huh, I'm looking for God in this story. Do I know anyone else? Who was blameless without error, but jealous men conspired against him to have him killed? Do I know of anyone else whose body was condemned to death and sealed behind a stone? Hmm. Do I know of anyone else who emerged from their tomb alive when everyone expected them to be dead? Oh, isn't that interesting? I do know... And I wonder if Daniel in the lion's den is maybe this beautiful little foreshadowing, this little foretaste of Jesus who was to come. And I wonder if really the point of Daniel in the lion's den, I don't know if the point is really that, that if you get stuck in the lion's den, he'll save you and you'll emerge without a mark. I don't think that's the point because I know a lot of Christians who have a lot of scars. I think the point of Daniel in the lion's den is probably to give us a foretaste, just a little appetizer of a kingdom that is going to come, in which the lion is going to lay down with the lamb, in which the whole world will be restored to the order that God intended from the beginning. And you know, whenever God steps in and does miracles, you know what he's often doing? He's restoring to things how they ought to be. That's why when Jesus walked the face of the earth, he said, you know what? In my kingdom, nobody's blind. Be healed. In my kingdom, everyone can walk. Get up. In my kingdom, no one dies. Be raised. And so Daniel and the lion's den is this beautiful foretaste of the kingdom that is yet to come in which there will be peace, in which God will be in control and all will be restored. As we wait for that and as we look forward to it, we do try to live like Jesus and live like Daniel, pursuing the best for our city, expecting opposition, but remaining faithful to our citizenship, giving God all the glory. Let's pray.